Titus is a short enough book that when you open it up, it usually fits on the two pages in front of you. So as you turn to Titus, you will likely already be in the first chapter. Every pastor that I know could write a book, and the title of that book would be What My Seminary Education Failed to Teach Me. And in it would be chapters like, and this isn't about anything specific, How to Survive a Business Meeting. How to staff the nursery. Um, How to preach the funeral of a child. How to remember all the things you're supposed to be praying for. Uh, How to love people who think you're the devil. Uh, These different different things, right? Pastoral ministry is is just full of of tricky scenarios that, that no amount of book education can really prepare you for. Like the time that I was called to lead music at a funeral this guy. And I, and I just told the sound person, okay, I'm going to come in strong, but you just pull me back. <laughs> and so I'm up there waving my arms around. I don't even know what that even does. I just have seen other guys do it. It was bad. But at the same time, there are great blessings in pastoral ministry that, that you don't see coming either. And one of the blessings that I've been experiencing in this recent season of ministry is working with our team of elders. A year ago, our congregation installed its first board of elders, and that group has been all systems go ever since, all the time. We are leading and shepherding and praying and teaching and thinking about things and doing the things that elders do. And it's just been a huge blessing to me and to the ministry of our church, I think. And so with all of these recent developments in mind, let me offer two sincere commendations this morning. First, I want to commend you as a church. I commend you for seeing what the New Testament prescribes about church leadership and and choosing to align with that. That was a massive overhaul of church structure, but you did it, and you have not turned against it or away from it, so I commend you. The other commendation is for Kevin Friesen and Dr. Dwayne Jansen and Larry Fry and Harold Buller and Daniel Silk. Those men are the elders at Enid MB Church, and they operate alongside me. And these five men have been, without a doubt, the greatest blessing in my 18 years of pastoral ministry. They ooze wisdom. They ooze character and maturity. They, they prop me up where I am weak and where I lack wisdom. But more than that, these men deeply care about this flock, And to watch them labor for your good is amazing to me. I love these men. I hope that you love them as well. And I bring all this up because today we are studying a passage on elders. In the past two weeks, I've given you an introduction to the book of Titus. And in that introduction, we looked at context and geography and timing and and the occasion of the book. Basically, all the stuff that's so crucial in, 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 in... in interpreting a, Bible, a book of the Bible well and just crucial in, to, to, to good interpretation. Then last week we looked at the epistle's greeting, those first four verses in chapter 1. I called it a greeting of grace where Paul laid out the purpose of his ministry as an apostle. And he laid it all out so that he could delegate his apostolic authority to his protege Titus. Paul is communicating through this letter that the mission he was given from Jesus Christ, he is now giving to Titus. 
And closing out that greeting, Paul gives an extension of grace and peace from the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. That's the language he uses. Jesus is repeatedly marked out as Savior in the book of Titus. More than any letter Paul writes, he wants to communicate the saving grace of Jesus. The people on Crete, where Titus is located, they are wicked, they need a Savior, and Jesus is that Savior. And his salvation, it is one of grace, which is to say that it's rooted in God's unconditional election of sinners. And what that saving grace yields is peace with God for those who believe. That word believe. If you have never put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you've never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, I usually save this for the end. I'm going to do it at the beginning. I want you to put your faith in Jesus. I want you to recognize what Scripture says about your condition, that you're a sinner who's fallen short of God's glory. And that's, that's the condition of all of us. And as people in our sinful condition, there's only one way out of it. There's only one way to peace with God. There's only one way to have our sins atoned for and ultimately be saved. And that's to believe, to trust, to throw all our weight upon the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never done that, believe today. Trust in him. Trust in him. Look to him. Transfer your trust away from yourself and from your deadly doing and from all the other things that you tend to to put your confidence in and look only to Jesus and be saved. So this morning we come to the first block of instruction that Paul offers in his letter to Titus. Again, the subject is church leadership, and we're going to now read it together. We're going to begin verse nine, or verse, excuse me, verse five, and we'll read down to verse nine. Again, this is Titus chapter one. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, Paul writes. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. This is God's word. We'll break this passage down into two major sections this morning. They're there in your notes. First, the purpose of Titus and Crete, and then the profile of elders in the church. Those are our two major divisions today. But before we get into the body of this letter, I should mention that when studying a pastoral epistle, which is what Titus is, along with 1st and 2nd Timothy, a pastoral epistle, you end up doing a lot of thinking about the church, both the church you're a part of and the church in general, which that leads me to want to provide some clarity for you. When you're talking about the church, you're talking about one of two things. The church is two things. First, there is the universal church. The universal church is is comprised of believers everywhere and for all time. The universal church is the global expression of Christ on 
earth. It's comprised of all those who trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. It is the capital C church. Okay? And all who believe in Christ are a part of this universal church. But the universal church is comprised of smaller bodies, which are localized expressions of that body of Christ, and those are called local churches. Enid Enby Church is a local church. Hillsdale Bible Church is a local church. Sojourn is a local church. Emmanuel is a local church. Oakwood Christian Church is a local, and I could go on and on, dozens and dozens and dozens of churches in our community, local churches. What is a local church? There are four basic characteristics to a local church. First, it's a group of people professing faith in Jesus Christ and his saving work on the cross, which means that we are a people, we are committed to the words of the apostles and the prophets, the Old and the New Testaments, and what they proclaim explicitly about the Lord Jesus. We're committed to these things. So by virtue of this, something like the Unitarian Universalist Church, which there are those, maybe not in this community, but uh, several in the state of Oklahoma, a Unitarian church, it's not a church. They don't believe in the testimony that's found in Scripture, so they're not a church. A Mormon assembly, not a church. A a Jehovah's Witness assembly, not a church. A church looks to the word of the apostles and the prophets, the, the material found in the Old and the New Testament, and it commits itself to those teachings. It commits to professing faith in Jesus Christ alone. Secondly, it's also a group of people committed... To, to meeting regularly in a particular geographic area. A local church is just that. It's localized. So a local church doesn't meet in Enid one week, then in Wichita the next week, then in Colorado Springs the next week. No, it has geographic placement. So a revival tour that's going all across the country, that's, mm, that's not a church. It has a geographic center. The third, it's a group of people who meet for corporate worship, and that corporate worship is made up of several elements. Prayer, the preaching of God's Word, and the ordinances. The ordinances are baptism and the Lord's Supper. These are the core practices of a local church. A local church can do more than these three things, but it needs to do at least those three things. Prayer, the Word, and the ordinances, or the sacraments, as some people refer to them. And then fourth... It's a group of people assembled under the oversight of qualified elders and deacons. Those are the offices in the local church prescribed by the New Testament, elders and deacons. The primary office is that of elder. And then, just as it occurred in Acts chapter 6, when the needs of the church pull elders away from their primary duty of studying the word and prayer, the church is to then appoint deacons to take care of and serve in the practical matters of church life. That's what the word deacon means. It's diakonos. It means servant. So that's a local church. And with those ingredients for a local church, let's get into this outline this morning. You remember that Crete was a major island in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. It was uh, and is really the most prominent of the Greek islands, with history dating all the way back to the Minoans, so like 2750 BC, one of the oldest civilizations in the world. It was a large island, 130 miles long, anywhere from 7 to 30 miles wide. The Greek author Homer in, in the Iliad, he recorded, there, excuse me, he recorded that there were probably about 100 cities or towns on the island of Crete. In the first century, there were as many as 300,000 people living on the island. And because of its position in the Mediterranean, which if you flip to your maps in the back, you can kind of take a look at at where Crete was located, 
It had great importance. It, it, was, it was an important port. It was a, it was a commercial way station for shipping. Uh, it was also an eclectic mix of cultures and worldviews and, and, and religions. Greek thought dominated on Crete, which is what made Titus such a good missionary choice. Titus was a thorough Greek But the Greek worldview of the Cretans was mixed with ancient religion, with Judaism, with Roman emperor worship, with the religions of North Africa that the sailors and the pirates had picked up and brought back there. Crete would have been, and in large part still is, a beautiful, fascinating, and by the description that we see in the book of Titus, also a very wicked place. Evidently, by the language used in verse 5, Paul had spent some time in Crete. He had interacted with some of the churches alongside Titus. And so he tells Titus, put what remained in order. Put what remained in order. This implies that Paul had left work undone in Crete. This verb to put in order or to straighten out, it's very rare. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. Commentators tell us it's a, um, excuse me, it's a form of a word that was used in Cretan legal documents. So in some sense, Paul is using language that the Cretans would be familiar with. Put what remained in order, straighten things out. And in Paul's mind, in order to finish what they had started, in order to straighten things out, Titus had to first appoint elders in every town. That's priority number one in Crete, in the book of Titus, appoint elders. So it's not, hey, secure a building You know, it's not, hey, go work on a mission statement or core values. It's not, hey, go hire a really awesome worship leader. Sorry, Chris. It's appoint elders. That's what you need to do. The work of putting things in order was not going to happen unless elders were placed in the churches. And what you also need to see is that much freedom is given to how that actually works itself out practically and in in the details. Paul doesn't prescribe sort of this strict way of accomplishing that. He leaves it sort of wide open, and I think that's just a reflection of God's wisdom that over time that's going to look different in different churches in different places. And just as an aside as well, we don't get the impression from what the New Testament says about elders that the office of elder is ever to be held in isolation. In the New Testament, the term elder is always used in the plural. Elders are to lead and shepherd in the wisdom of their plurality. We believe it takes more than one man to shepherd, lead, and and put in order the church. And this protects the church against any one person having absolute power. It protects the elder from his own limitations. The elder is not the king of the local church. He is the primary servant leader, but only if he is alongside other qualified servant leaders. That's the elder. So Christ, Christ is the head of, of every church body. He is the chief shepherd, but Christ calls under-shepherds, elders, to provide servant leadership in the flock. So speaking of servant leaders, let's now turn to the profile of elders in the church, because there's much to be said. Paul requires, or excuse me, um, he gives lots of material here in these two verses. Beginning in verse 6, Paul gives a list of 17 elder qualifications that I think can be broken down into three categories. You have the elder's domestic life, you have his personal life, and then you have his doctrinal life. So the profile of elders, before I get into the home life of the elder, I want you to note just a couple of details. First, I want you to note the gender associated with each set of qualifications in your outline. The gender I put there is masculine. 
I used the pronoun his, and I did that intentionally. Intentional because the New Testament pattern is that elders are to be men. Just as husbands are necessarily male and called to be the sacrificial leader of the home, elders are also male and called to be the sacrificial leaders in the church. This passage points to male leadership in two different places. In verse 6, it says the elder is to be the husband of one wife. Husbands are male. At least traditionally they are. Secondly, in verse 9, it says he must hold firm to the word. He. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, which is the other major passage in the New Testament explaining the qualifications for an elder, the masculine pronoun he or his is used nine times in seven verses, all describing the qualifications and the work of an elder. And what's interesting is the passage immediately following that passage on elders in 1 Timothy 3, it gives the qualifications for deacons. We're not going to talk about deacons this morning, but I do need to make this point. And in those six verses regarding the qualifications for deacons, all the pronouns related to deacons are gender neutral. So masculine in their reference to elders, gender neutral in their reference to to deacons. That's not insignificant given the fact that those two passages are right next to each other. But the exclusivity of the elder office in terms of it being male only is not to say, it's absolutely not to say that men are more gifted or smarter or better leaders. None of that. Plenty of women in a church are smarter or more gifted and better at leadership than men. Paul is not communicating that men are better It's simply to say that the order of leadership in the church mirrors what God has also ordered in the family. It doesn't make the male office of husband and elder more important than those of the female. It just makes them distinct. I don't have to tell you this, but God has made each gender a little bit different. I'll let that simmer, right? And their differences equip them to take on certain roles. And the roles are not to be viewed as more or less important. They're simply to be viewed as different. And this is so important in our day. Because to argue against these differences, as many church leaders do, as many in our broader culture do, it actually flattens the distinctions between men and women. Which is exactly what the broader culture has attempted to accomplish for decades. And I think that disrupts what it means for men and women to be made in God's image, gloriously different, gloriously complementary to one another. But back to the elder's domestic life. His domestic life, note the first of two occasions in this passage where it said that the elder must be above reproach. Some of your versions say blameless. And this is a sort of general umbrella qualification And what it does not mean, what blameless does not mean, is that the elder is to be sinless. If it meant that, there would be no elders. It just means that the elder is to be unchargeable, which is to say, because of his character, because of his reputation, he is a man that negative accusations have difficulty sticking to. He's blameless. He's tough to blame. Maritally, The text says he's to be the husband of one wife. And there's a lot of thinking about what this means, the husband of one wife. I'm actually going to go through all five prominent views, okay? 
Here are the five prominent views on husband of one wife. First, some say that it's a prohibition against polygamy, having multiple wives. And I doubt that this is the author's intent because there was little to no polygamy in the Roman, Greek, or Judaic culture. We're not referencing polygamy here. We're not endorsing it either, but we're not referencing it. Second, the second view is that it's a prohibition against divorce and remarriage. That an elder cannot be remarried after a divorce. I don't think this is the meaning either because the Bible gives exceptions that allow for remarriage. So when a divorce occurs because of infidelity or abandonment, remarriage is blessed and allowed for. So it's not referring to that. Third, some would say this is a prohibition against remarriage, period. No questions asked. So if a spouse dies, a man is disqualified from eldership if he remarries. And this isn't true. This isn't applicable here because 1 Corinthians 7.31 allows for remarriage in that kind of circumstance as long as that remarriage is to a, a believer. Fourth, the fourth interpretation or view is that this says, husband of one wife, it says that because the elder has to be married. That marriage is a prerequisite for the role of the elder. And I, and I can't agree with this because if that were the case, then Paul wouldn't be a qualified elder. He was unmarried. Jesus wouldn't be a qualified elder. Or even Titus. We know Titus was not a married man. So it says, it says husband of one wife, not husband of a wife. So it's not saying he has to be married. He doesn't have to be married. Single men can serve in the office of elder. The fifth view, which I take to be the correct view, you always leave your view for last. The view that I think this, what I think this is saying is that he is a man who is to be sexually pure. The literal translation is actually a one-woman man. This means the elder is to be a man who is faithful to his spouse. So he's not flirtatious. He's not given over to lust or to, or to pornography. He's a one-woman man. So that's half of the elder's home life. The second half has to do with his children. Uh, an elder doesn't have to have children to qualify for the office, but if he does, it says here in our text that his children are to be believers, not open to the charge of debauchery, or insubordination. Some of your versions say dissipation or rebellion. And the word for believer there in verse 6 is from the word pistos, which means faithful or trustworthy. Some English translation use, they actually use the word faithful in this verse. And the reason I want to point that out is because I don't think an elder's children have to be believers. And I say this for a few reasons. One, this qualification found in Titus is not used in 1 Timothy. Again, 1 Timothy has this other big block of, of material, material regarding the qualification of elders. And it's not found there. It's unique to Titus. I think a qualification this definite would repeat itself in both lists. Second, a father cannot ultimately control whether their child is a believer or not a believer. Salvation is of the Lord, not the dad. And then third, the third reason I don't think this is saying that the children have to be believers is that grown children are completely removed from fatherly influence. So perhaps a man comes to faith in Christ after his kids have left home. 
and he matures in the faith, and he matures in his godly example, would he be disqualified for eldership on the basis of influence over his children that he never had a chance to have? No. So I don't think this is a strict mandate saying that an elder's children have to be Christian. I do think it's saying the elder's kids have to be faithful in honoring their father, which explains the rest of the verse, that they not be open to dissipation or rebellion, debauchery or insubordination. Pick your favorite big word. So the elder has to have kids that want to honor him and live lives that don't bring reproach upon him. We're not talking about perfect kids or or kids that don't screw up from time to time. We're just talking about kids that honor, respect, and love their dad. If a child can't faithfully give his father respect, there's usually a reason for that. And it's at times found in the character of the father. And so this is insurance against that. I like how one pastor said it. He said, home is the proving ground for life and ministry. If you can't manage a household, if you cannot shepherd your kids in a gentle and loving way, how would you do it with a church family? You wouldn't. So now let's jump to his personal life. His personal life. This section is essentially outlining the elder's character. And as we go through this, what you see is that the elder is to serve as an example to the body. A domestic example, we've covered that, and now a personal example. We're given five vices and six virtues in these two verses. But again, the general, the general qualification is repeated there in verse 7, that he be above reproach. Again, this is the idea of blamelessness. And here we're given a reason why he is to be blameless because he's God's steward. The elder is the overseer of the things that belong to God. In the time this was written, the term steward came out of the common practice of a particular slave serving his master by managing the affairs of his household. That slave, he didn't own the household. He served the owner by wisely bearing the responsibilities that were entrusted to him. Stewardship, then, was obligatory, faithful service. That's an elder. Stewarding what belongs to God, not the elder. This eliminates lording it over the people, lording that authority. This eliminates heavy-handed leadership, or heavy shepherding, as it's been called uh, in Britain. The term overseer, which is a synonym of elder, simply means to provide oversight. It's a different word than elder itself. Elder is the Greek word presbyteros, where we get the word presbytery. But it's the term overseer. And so overseer and pastor and elder are used interchangeably in the New Testament. They all point to the same office, but they bring out its varied functions. Okay. But in regards to his personal life, we first see... In this long listing, in these listing of seven, or, uh, excuse me, 11 different things, we see that he's not to be arrogant or self-willed. Philip Towner gave an, ex- an excellent definition of self-willed in his commentary on Titus. He said, self-willed, it's a fundamental selfishness that compels one to ride roughshod over others in an effort to satisfy oneself. I'm going to say that again. To be self-willed is a fundamental selfishness that compels one to ride roughshod over others in an effort to satisfy oneself. 
So that's the complete opposite of considering others better than yourself. You just consider yourselves routinely better than others. And we've seen elders or we've seen leaders operate this way, I'm sure. Not in this church, but in other places. Again, he's also not to be quick-tempered. This is pretty obvious. Proverbs has a lot to say about those who are quick-tempered or easily angered. Proverbs 22 says, make no friendship with a man given to anger. This word, quick-tempered, it describes those characterized by an explosive lack of control over their anger. So no incredible hulks on the elder board. Not a good idea. Things don't end well. He's not to be a drunkard or, a, or, or violent. And it, you, you see those two vices next to each other, both in Titus and in 1 Timothy, because there's this idea that one leads to another. Drunkenness or excessive drinking leads to violence. Country music seems to validate this, right? <laughs> get drunk and get in a fight. Some versions regarding this qualification say not addicted to wine. So this is not... This is not a prohibition against drinking alcohol. Paul actually urged Timothy to take a little wine for his stomach. You remember that. So we need to be careful not to equate drunkenness with with moderate consumption. They're not the same thing. He's also not to be greedy for gain. Greedy for gain. 1 Timothy 3 states it as him being free from the love of money. So this isn't saying the elder can't have wealth. An elder or a pastor, he doesn't have to be poor. It just means he, he isn't using his influence as elder for financial gain. To gain great wealth. He's a man who actually leads the way in generosity. He's more excited about giving money than making money and stacking it up for himself. Again, this is, this is all a part of modeling faithfulness before the congregation. That's what the elder's doing. The Cretans, remember we talked about the Cretans, they were without good examples. Their spiritual leadership was pathetic. They taught bad doctrine. They lived lives undistinct from the world around them. They needed good, godly elders to model Christian living, and that's what Paul is laying out. So those are the five vices. Now we turn to these six virtues real quick. He's to be hospitable. Hospitable. This simply refers to someone who gladly opens their home to both friends and strangers. Again, there were no church buildings in the first century. The early church was a house church movement. Therefore, elders required hospitality. And we've kind of twisted hospitality up in our current day and age. Hospitality is not about a woman's ability to turn what she sees on Pinterest into reality. It's not about making a home lovely. No, it's just about basic openness to outsiders, about viewing what God has given you as not your own, but as a tool for ministry. That's hospitality. Also, to have a love for what is good. That's pretty self-explanatory. This is the elder's inclination to pursue things, to pursue people that are virtuous, he doesn't spend his time with things that are sort of in the gutter and lowbrow, but he loves what is good. He loves what is virtuous. He's also to be self-controlled. This is just a basic fruit of the spirit. Spirit, Again, a trait which is key to the exemplary life. He's upright or he's just or he's fair. Basically, he's honest. 
people want to do business with you. They want to interact with you. They know you'll be fair. They know you'll be just and upright. He's to be holy. Now, what this doesn't mean is that he's perfectly righteous, that he's attained it and he doesn't sin. No. Again, that would disqualify all of us. It just means that he's set apart to God. Christ is the Lord of the elder's life, and it's evident to those who watch him live. He's holy. He's set apart. And then he's also to be disciplined. And this means that he's not mastered by pleasures. So the pleasures of the body, the many appetites that come along with the flesh. No, he's, he's disciplined. He, he's temperate. He's restrained to God's will, not restrained to his flesh. And, and it's interesting, in some reading that I did this week, many of these traits in this listing here, they are from what the Greeks called their list of cardinal virtues. And what Paul does is he simply co-ops them for his divine purposes. He uses language and virtues that the Cretans would already recognize and revere, and he applies them to the work of a church leader. And you have to notice that there's nothing in here about status or wealth or education or physical prowess. It's all character. It's all character. But that does bring us to the final category. Because in verse 9, we encounter the one competency the elder must have. And this is where we see what the elder does. Interesting. Again, to this point, we've just described the man. We've unpacked his character. We haven't seen what he is to do. And the last verse says that the elder is to do three things. That he holds firm to the word. He holds firm to the word. He applies it to his life. He's committed to teaching sound doctrine, and he's ready to rebuke those who oppose that doctrine. So first, he must hold firm to the word. Again, since elders serve the body as examples, they are the ones who must have a strong grasp of the gospel and how it applies to all of life. The elder is to live and breathe gospel. He is to to lead the way in the gospel culture that we've talked about so much in the last couple of months. He must find delight in digging into Scripture. And he doesn't just prepare lessons to teach, but he embraces the Word as crucial for his own soul. He sees it as as, as honey to his lips. He loves the Word. He holds firm to the Word. He applies it to his life. He also must be committed to teaching sound doctrine. To put it simply, doctrine matters to an elder. And here's what you need to understand. Just because an elder loves and understands doctrine, he doesn't necessarily have to be a gifted teacher. You know, somebody who can stand up and deliver a well-organized lesson with PowerPoint and handouts and all that kind of stuff. No, he he doesn't have to necessarily be that guy. He just has to be able to sit down with someone and talk about doctrine to explain it, to answer questions, to give instruction. That's all that means. He must be committed to teaching sound doctrine. Nowhere is it said that an elder must possess the gift of teaching. In fact, you can have the gift of teaching and not be qualified to serve as an elder. And there's plenty of people that do that, and we would would charge them and say, blessings on you, keep doing it. And then the third thing, he must be ready to rebuke those who oppose sound doctrine. Since Paul explained that an elder 
He must not be quick-tempered. He must not be a bully. It goes without saying that this elder, he doesn't relish confrontation. He's not looking for a fight. Yet when the gospel is at stake, when the health and the unity and the vibrancy of the church, when it sort of hangs in the balance, when, when a person is on the brink of spiritual or moral ruin, elders rise to the challenge. They're there. They're not trying to pick doctrinal fights, but they're rushing to the battle when they know that they are needed. They're sort of like a spiritual SWAT team, ready to maintain doctrinal purity, having doctrinal sensitivity, and ready to engage anyone that would bring a threat to the body of Christ. I like how John Calvin said it. He said, the pastor, the pastor ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for driving away the wolves. The Scripture supplies him with the means of doing both. As I said at the beginning, one of my greatest delights in ministry is being able to serve alongside and together with my fellow elders. Just, just knowing that I do not stand alone, that I do not minister alone or bear burdens alone, that, that constantly encourages me in the ministry. And what excites me is that is that I believe there are other men in this body that God is preparing to serve as elders. It may be next year, it may be in five years, it may be in 15 years, but I pray frequently that the Lord might raise up more men to serve this body as elders. And I hope you're praying that as well. And I hope that in this month of October, as we're taking nominations for elders, that you're being mindful of who you might nominate, who you might put forth to see if they're called and qualified to serve in that capacity. I pray frequently that the church might faithfully follow the leadership of our elders. It might might esteem them and recognize the position that they're in and follow their leadership as they try to lead in a way that brings God glory and brings our church great joy. And I also pray frequently that our elders might constantly know the grace of God that's, that's what effective elder ministry requires. It requires the grace of God. The grace of God and, uh, upon them as they seek to fulfill what they've been entrusted with as God's stewards. I pray that you would be committed to, uh, to, to praying for them as well. That you would recognize their task and know that they're laboring for you. That they're, they're praying for you that they're constantly thinking about the well-being of this congregation, how it's growing, uh, what it's doing, the ministry that needs to be taking place. We actually, I think we're up to the letter R. We're, We're praying through our church directory. If you are in our church directory, you've been prayed for by the elders, as long as your name isn't start with S. We'll get to you here in the next few months. But we're just praying through the directory each month. We're talking about the people in this church, what they need, how we can serve them. It's on our minds constantly. Pray for these men. They desperately need it. They need grace, uh, as do I. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we looked at it today, we we recognize both how, how stirring your word can be and also how practical it can be. This is very sort of nuts and bolts for us today as a church. And I thank you for the way you've worked in this church in bringing us to a place where uh, we have called and qualified church leaders, men who love this flock and want to labor on its behalf. 
Lord, I pray that you would bless those men, that you would bring us more of them who could do uh, this noble work. And God, I pray that you continue to give them a heart of servant leadership. Not men who beat their chests with the authority that they've been given, not men who want to lord it over or or shepherd in a a heavy-handed way, but men who are first to grab the towel and, and wash the feet of those who gather in this place. So Lord, um, if there's anyone here that doesn't, that doesn't know you, that has always been sort of on the outside looking in when it comes to a church family being a flock that's under the care of, of faithful shepherds, Lord, I, I pray that today they would find themselves in the flock, that they would put their faith in you, and Lord, they would come under the, the care of Jesus as the chief shepherd, and then ultimately under the care um, of, of a group of church leaders. Lord, um, we need grace in all of these things. I pray that you would provide illumination by your Holy Spirit uh, to your word as people in our church read it this week and bring us back here together next week, expectant, ready to hear from you, willing to do whatever you've called us toward. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.